this sermon burdened with glorious purpose. And if you are a Marvel Comics fan, then maybe you get that uh, inside joke. But Devin and I, he's not here today, he's in St. Louis with some friends of his, but we've been watching through the Loki series. And so this phrase that he said kept popping into my head all week long, burdened with glorious purpose, burdened with glorious purpose. And um, while it made me chuckle at first, the, the topic, the subject matter that we'd be going through today is really far from funny. Uh, it's a little heavy today, I'll be honest. Um, in the eight months that we've been at church, eight months, uh, this is probably the most important sermon that I've ever prepared. So I'm very excited about it. My task today, uh, with the help of the Holy Spirit, is to confer to you guys how passionate I am about this message, that we can take something away and serve as a wake-up call, hopefully, because what we're going to be uh, talking about, and it certainly has been impacting for me, is our lives, our time, and our purpose. Some light reading today. Our lives, our time, and our purpose. Uh, there is there's a story that I read, and it was about the great philosopher Socrates, right? Or if you're my age, you know him as Socrates. <laughs> there's a couple apps that get it. Okay, good. Socrates. And this young man comes to Socrates, and he says, Oh, great and wise Socrates, I am seeking knowledge. And so Socrates knew a pompous, prideful young man when he saw one. And he said, okay, you were seeking knowledge, and he grabbed him by the arm, and he took him through the street, down to the ocean, and about chest deep in the water. And he said, now what are you searching for? And the man said, oh, wise Socrates, I am searching knowledge. And the rather large, strong Socrates put his hands on his shoulders and dumped him underneath the water. So 30 seconds goes by, he dunks this guy into the water, he brings him back up, and he says, now, what do you want? And he's like... Knowledge, oh wise Socrates, he grabs him and he pushes him under the water again. This time, 35, 40 seconds. And then he raises him back up and he's like, what do you want? And he's sputtering and he's trying to get his breath and he's like, I want wisdom. And he pushes him down one last time and he holds, I don't even know if I can hold my breath that long, all right? 45, 50 seconds, brings him back up and he says, what do you want? The guy says, air, I want air, that's what I want. And Socrates said, when you want knowledge as much as you have just wanted air, then you will have knowledge. I thought that was an interesting story. Um, the Apostle Paul was one of the most learned men of his day. I mean, he was smart. When he was a boy, he sat at the most famous teacher in Israel of that day, a man named Gamaliel. So he got a great start. He called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. Basically, everybody in my group, the most religious people of the day, I was number one. I outdid them all. And when he went to Athens, he went to Greece once, and as he went to Athens, that was the capital, the center of knowledge of that day. And it says that he went to Athens, and immediately, he didn't even hesitate, he went right to Mars Hill, which was where all of the smart people gathered, where all the philosophers and people would get together and talk about ideas all day long. And he went there immediately and started reasoning with them about the gospel. So Paul was no slouch. But his encounter with Jesus along the road to Damascus was really the spiritual equivalent of him being dunked under the water. Only his air was the gospel, and he had to preach it. He says in 1 Corinthians 19, uh, 9, 16, he says, Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Like, I have to do it. I will be 
doomed if I don't, because this is my purpose in life. He knew, Paul knew, that he himself was expendable. Right? Like, I don't care what happens to me. I just want the gospel to go forward. And even though I'm expendable, I am indestructible until my purpose on life is fulfilled. But he said, when that's done, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. Okay. Who, this will be an easier question. Who hasn't seen the movie Pollyanna? Okay, everybody's seen it. Oh, you haven't seen Pollyanna? Okay. Laura? Got a job there. Okay. In the movie, so all of you guys said, in the movie Pollyanna, right? There's like one church in the town. Because for some reason, everybody goes to this church, Big Baptist Church. And they've got the fiery preacher, right? And he climbs up the stairs. They've got one of those pulpits that's way high up above everybody else. And he climbs up there and he stands there. And everybody's super quiet. You can hear a pin drop. And everybody's looking up at him. And he says, he goes, death comes unexpectedly. And he slams his fist down on the pulpit, right? And he looks at me the way some of you looked at me. <laughs> Everybody goes like this. And the point he was trying to make, being this fire and brimstone preacher, was that life is short. Life is brief. How are you living? Are you taking you know, stock of your life? And so are we, am I, are you ready because life is so short. And that's what we're going to be really talking about today. Burdened with glorious purpose. Paul was burdened with glorious purpose. Um, I know that we're not all evangelists like Paul was. Uh, but what is it in our lives that is like air to us? Like what do we feel stifled by if we don't have access to it? Last week we talked about advancing the gospel. And Paul uh, was talking to the church in Philippi. And they were freaked out. They were worried because their pastor, Paul, had been thrown in jail in Rome. And so they're freaked out about it. And he's writing this letter. He says, actually, what has happened by me being thrown in jail, by going through the shipwreck and going through all the stuff that I've done, is making the gospel spread faster. It's actually making it go faster. And that is a fantastic thing. And nobody expected that. Right? Nobody expected that when Paul, their pastor, the preacher, got put in jail, that the gospel would actually move faster. And sometimes we think we know how things should go. Right? We think we have things wired. We think we're carrying out a plan. But in reality, we have no idea what God wants to do in us and through us if we will just surrender to Him. If we'll surrender our lives to Him. And some people say, well, I'm a Christian. Like, I follow Jesus. I have the Holy Spirit inside of me. And if you are following Jesus, that is true. You do have the Holy Spirit inside of you. But the real question is, does the Holy Spirit have you? You have the Holy Spirit, but does the Holy Spirit have you? And the Holy Spirit had Paul for sure. Because of that, he spent his time in jail ministering, not moping. Because the temptation would have been to fall into, you know, depression, to fall into despair, anxiety, worry. Here I am, I'm chained 24-7 to one of these Roman guards. But instead of moping, he's ministering, he's writing letters to the churches. He's, you know, getting the guards that are chained to him saved. We have no idea what the future holds. He could have got an Eeyore complex, right? He had been through shipwrecks, he had been through beatings, he had been through jail, all this stuff, snake bites. But he didn't. He kept on ministry. Because he didn't surrender to his circumstances, his ministry continued. 
We talked about um, if we surrender to our circumstances, things that are going on, uh, we will ride the roller coaster. And a lot of students, right? We surrender to our circumstances, what's going on that day. We come home and we're not in a good mood. You say, what happened to you today? So we surrender to our circumstances. Uh, but when we surrender to our Savior, when we surrender to someone bigger, greater than ourselves, we can live above that. We can have joy in the midst of difficult circumstances because we are submitted to a who and not to a what. Not what happened to, the, to you today because of who we're surrendered to. And not only were the soldiers watching, not only are the soldiers getting saved because they're watching Paul and what he's going through, the church in Rome is actually watching him as well. This is an important principle. We talk about how people outside, you know, the unsaved are watching us. People inside the church are watching as well. And they're watching the way that Paul is reacting. They're watching the way that he's ministering in spite of all of this trouble. And he says that they're preaching with much more boldness and without fear. So what's happened is all these people see the way he is living and they start preaching more boldly. They don't, they're like, if he can do it in jail, man, I can do it out here. And will our lives, our lives affect people. The way we live our lives affect people. And will our lives make people live closer to the Lord? Will it make them live more boldly and share God more freely? Or will it cause them to retreat? Will it cause them to retreat and join us in worry and anxiety and talking about the things that are wrong with our lives instead of talking about who we are submitted to, who is the Lord of our lives? And the choice is yours because I've said it and I'll keep saying it. If you change your mind, God will change your heart. God will change your heart. Paul tells us, you know, these guys were preaching with much more boldness, but there were some who were preaching that did not have good motives. Like they were teaching it, they were teaching for selfish motives. They just wanted to use Paul's situation to build themselves up. Like Paul's in prison, uh, maybe he's there for some secret sin, maybe he's being punished, we don't know, but he wanted to use uh, that situation to build a following. And did that make Paul upset? Did Paul say, listen, these guys are stealing my congregation? No, it didn't bother them at all. In fact, he said, as long as their theology is good, as long as they're preaching Jesus, that's all I care about. That's all, that's all I want is for the gospel to advance. God will take care of their hearts. God is in charge of their motives and taking care of all that. All I care is that Jesus gets preached. The NFL season is two weeks away, guys. It's going to be like 100 degrees today. But the NFL season, first game is like August 5th. That's the first preseason, preseason game. Yeah, it's crazy. And people are excited about the Chiefs, right? The Royals think we're going to move on from them. And everybody's excited about the Chiefs. Do you really care who the names are on the back of the jerseys for the linemen that are protecting Patrick Mahomes. You don't care. Do you care who the receivers are that are out on the field catching the ball, except for your fantasy team? You don't care. All we want is for the Chiefs at the end of the game for them to be victorious. We don't care if the guys' names um, are, you know, Jackson or White or, you know, Grunhard or whoever it is. We don't care. We just want the Chiefs to be successful. And the guiding question of Paul's life, as he's saying, I don't care who these people are, their motives may not be pure, I just want the gospel to be preached, is this, does it bring God glory? Does it bring God glory? Because that's the only thing that matters. I don't want the glory, I've already tried that. It didn't work out well. I just want him to get the glory. So in 1 Corinthians, he writes this to the church in Corinth, chapter 10, verse 31. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
All things to the glory of God. I was talking to a friend of mine who was hanging out with him the other night, and he was like, I don't really know if what I do uh, is bringing glory to God. And I said, well, that's interesting because I'm talking about that on Sunday. And let me tell you that what you do, whatever it is, you can do all things to the glory of God. Um, and, I mean, eating and drinking, how do we eat and drink to the glory of God, right? Um, these are questions that people have asked. Uh, but, you know, when we use the things that we've been given, the time, talents, and treasure that we've been given, and we use it to point people towards Jesus, when we use our, you know, work situations or our hobbies or whatever that might be, uh, to point people to the Lord, that is doing it for the glory of God. So he says, I do all things for his glory, not for myself, so that people can be saved. Why was Paul so obsessed with magnifying God? Like, that's what he wanted to do. And I thought that was interesting that we sang that song, Magnify the Lord with me. Let us praise his name together. We were doing a study with the teens before the summer. We've taken a break for the summer. Uh, but we're going to jump back in in about a month, teens. So get ready. <laughs> and last, one of the last things we did, we watched a, movie, we watched a video by a, game, uh, a pastor named Louis Giglio, if you know him. And he was on a tour a long time ago. Uh, with his worship pastor. His worship pastor is Matt Redman, which is a pretty good worship guy to have. Um, and he wrote that song, Indescribable, right? Indescribable, uncontainable. You put the stars in the sky and you know them by name. And so he was doing this whole presentation on the solar system and how incredible it is. And so I was going to read some of the things to you just because it's interesting. This is what he was talking about. The teens already know this because they watched it. Um, he says, if the earth was the size of a golf ball, you may have heard this. If the, surge, if, the sun was, if the earth was the size of a golf ball, the sun would be 15 feet in diameter if the earth was a golf ball. To put that in perspective, the sun is so big, you could put 960,000 earths inside the sun. That's enough golf balls to fill a school bus to its entirety, to fill it full. 960,000 golf um, Now, the sun is just one of... Hundreds of billions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy. There is a star, this is interesting, there is a star called Betelgeuse. That's what they named it, the star of Betelgeuse. And it is 427 light years away from us. That is 5.888 trillion miles away. That's how far it is away. And somehow the Hubble telescope can show it to us. Uh, this star is twice the size of the Earth's orbit around the sun. That's how big this planet Betelgeuse is. Now, if the Earth were a golf ball, Betelgeuse would be the size of six Empire State Buildings stacked on top of one another. If you've ever been to New York, you've ever stood at the bottom of the, you know, of that building, that's pretty big. Six of them stacked on top of her, if the Earth was the size of a golf ball. Uh, to put that in perspective, you could fit two, 252 trillion Earths inside Betelgeuse. If it was a golf ball, 252 trillion Earth, or Earths inside Betelgeuse. If the Earth were a golf ball, that would be enough golf balls to fill the Superdome 3,000 times. That's amazing. And so Paul is obsessed with magnifying God because these things are incredibly huge, but we can't see them with the naked eye. Unless we have something to magnify them, we can't appreciate them, we can't see them for what they are. And Paul is saying, God is so big, he is so glorious, if I don't magnify him, you are going to miss it because you are blind. You are missing him. And so I need to magnify him to bring him glory. Okay, that was all introduction. <laughs> Let's turn to our portion for today, Philippians 1. We are going to do three verses today, 19 through 21. 
For I know that through your prayers and the help of the, of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live as Christ, is Christ and to die is gain. Now almost two years Paul's been under house arrest here in Rome. And he has the sense now that that's coming to an end. That's coming to a close. He's going to be let go soon. And we don't know if you know God told him this or he just knows this. Um, but he says that the prayers of the church, he was constantly telling the church, pray for me. Remember me in my chains. Pray for me in my situation. Pray that we can you know, get into these areas and preach the gospel boldly. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, those are going to spring him out of prison. He knows this. And he is living in such a way that he knows he will not be ashamed. He is asking for prayers from the church provision. He knows that God's going to provide for him because he has made him a promise and it's all part of his plan. Prayers, provision, promise, and plan. It's all part of God's plan, everything that's happening to him. None of us know when our last day is. None of us know. Uh, we're talking about, you know, what happens, you know, 20, we have aches and pains, you know, and things that are bothering us. Like, man, if we feel like this now, how are we going to feel in 20 years? Uh, but nobody knows when their last day is. And so are we living, are you living in a way that we can say, I will not be ashamed. I have full courage and expectation that I am not going to be ashamed. I'm not going to be ashamed when people find out how I work at my job. I'm not going to be ashamed when people flip through my phone. I'm not going to be ashamed if people look through my Bible or my check journal or whatever. I'm not going to be ashamed. Jesus came to conquer sin, hell, and the grave so that we did not have to live with shame, so that we could live a life that's pleasing to Him. Amen. Paul writes one of the most recognizable verses in all the Bible, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, in the original Greek, the verbs aren't there, so it literally reads, for me, live to live Christ... To die, gain. To live Christ, to die, gain. That's very single-minded. That is a mission statement. We talked about chapter 1 and how chapter 1 is all about being single-minded. That is Paul right now. If I live the gospel advances, I preach Jesus. But if I die, I get a promotion. <laughs> That's where I want to go anyway. And then we're going to learn next week. We're going to hear it. He's like, I'm really hard-pressed to decide between the two. I don't know what I would choose. But I know that for right now, if I live, I'm going to preach Jesus. And then when I die, I'm going to see all things clearly. We can't see everything now. In fact, he writes to the church in Corinth in uh, chapter 13, verse 12. It says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The only way Paul can make a statement like this, the only way he can make a statement like to live as Christ, to die as gain, is because... Jesus is his source. That is his heir. He's connected to the who, not to the what. His single-minded source. Now, the world might say things like, for me to live is wealth. For me to live is wealth, and for me to die is to leave it for my kids to fight over. <laughs> Honestly. For me to live is pleasure. I'm living for pleasure. I'm going to try to get everything I can out of it, and to die is nothingness. Because this is all there is. So let's get as much as we can out of it. For me to live is fame and glory. For me to die is to leave my mark. For people that are A-types, for people that are high achievers, they want to leave their mark on the world.
But here's the problem. Our lives are too short to live for our own glory. You do not have enough time to build your own empire here on earth. There have been men that have tried. They have not had enough time. You do not have enough time to live for your own glory. Uh, it's interesting because what Jeff Bezos, one of the richest guys in the world, the guy who founded Amazon, flew into space right this week. He used his riches to fly himself into space because that's what he wanted to do. And I was reading a story this morning. Uh, there was an 18-year-old kid that went with him on their trip. An 18-year-old kid that went with him, and he told Jeff, I've actually never bought anything off Amazon before, <laughs> which I thought was funny. Here you have one of the richest guys in the world. He's paying to go to space. This 18-year-old kid comes with him. He's like, I actually, actually haven't never bought anything before. In 100 years, nobody's going to remember who Jeff Bezos is. And you say, who was that guy's name that started Amazon? You do not have enough time. Our time here is so small. Okay. Now, as I was putting this together, I'm looking at Paul to live and to die and his purpose and his time here on earth. Um, I thought about this message that I had seen years ago uh, by Andy Stanley. You guys know Andy Stanley. He is an incredible communicator. And he gave this uh, message years ago. And it, as I was thinking about this, it came to my mind. I thought, this fits perfectly. So I took some inspiration from Andy today. Um, and I just want to let you know that because it impacted me so much, I wanted to share it with you guys. Um, one of the best Old Testament examples of somebody who made the connection between life and time and purpose was a man named Moses. Right? We all know Moses. He made the connection between those. And we know him pretty well, but did you know that Moses actually wrote one of the Psalms? Moses wrote the oldest psalm that there is between 1200 and 1300 B.C., and it's in the book of Psalms. And in it, he talks about our lives. He talks about our purpose and our time here on earth. Now, he gives us a lot of context in this chapter. And to have purpose, you need context. And what Moses does beautifully in this chapter is create context for us. Moses is uniquely qualified to bring us this perspective because he was somebody that had seen it all. He had literally seen it all. He had everything, and then he went to having nothing. He had seen everything. Now, he lived to be 120 years old. Now, if you find someone who's 120 years old, maybe find somebody who's 90 years old, <laughs> you better start asking them some questions. They are going to have a unique perspective on life, and that's what Moses had. But here's how those 120 years went. The first 40 years started out as him, a spoiled rich kid in Egypt, being raised in Pharaoh's household. That was the greatest nation in the world at that time, Egypt. He's being raised as a prince. He could have whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. Now, you've seen the movies, 40 years he spends growing up in Egypt in the lap of luxury. Until one day, Moses gets infected with a fatal sense of purpose. He starts looking at the Hebrew people. He starts looking at the slaves. And it starts to bother him. And he says, somebody's got to do something about this. And so he starts to live with this tension that we couldn't even possibly understand. Between I have everything I want, and that might lead to the throne of the most powerful nation in the world. Or I can embrace purpose and step into this terrible situation and do something about it. Something that I have no idea where that's going to end. I can embrace that purpose. So he lives with this tension of living in an opulent lifestyle and doing something significant. And he decides to embrace purpose. He decides to step into that situation 
embracing purpose, but he goes about it the wrong way. He says, I want to free these people, but he ends up killing an Egyptian guard, right? Ends up killing it. And so because that makes trouble, he decides to flee. And leaving everything, literally, he could have covered that up, but he flees. He left everything. And he's, he spends 40 years in the desert watching sheep. So he goes from everything, from the palace to the pasture, watching sheep. Literally nothing. And then God gets a hold of him. You know the story. The next 40 years, God does something incredible through Moses. Through the man, God accomplishes so much. So he had everything. He walked away and had nothing. And then he discovers what everything is when God reveals himself to him. If you've ever met anyone, if you've ever heard anyone, if you've ever talked to anyone who has left everything to do something significant, pay attention. Pay attention to that person. We romanticize this in movies. We, you know, people that are super rich and they leave to go do some, something significant. But if you actually hear about that or see somebody in our day do that, pay attention. Because they have made the connection between time and life and purpose. And they know that life is short and I want to do something significant. That was Moses. Now Moses wrote Psalm 90 and there is a key verse in Psalm 90, 90 verse 12. And he says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. <clears throat> Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Basically, your days are numbered. Could be two days, could be two months, could be two years, but our days are numbered. And how are we going to live? Are we going to live for ourselves? Are we going to try to get everything we can? Or are we going to surrender to the who, to God, to Jesus, and live to bring glory to Him? To gain a heart of wisdom, to gain a heart of wisdom, Wisdom is the ability to be able to pull back from a situation, from a topic, and see it in its broader context. Okay, when people make, when people are short-sighted, when we say that person was short-sighted, they made an unwise decision because they did not look at the big picture, right? So wisdom is being able to pull back from the emotions, from the details, and see it from a broader perspective. Does that make sense? Okay, when your days are numbered, you should live with purpose. You should live with purpose. And context creates purpose. We can say we want to live purposefully, but if we do not have context, we don't know how to do that. Okay, let's do an object lesson. I think I should do more of these. Who has a drawer like this in their house? Anybody? A drawer like that in their house. We have like six iPhones in our house and we have like four chargers because we can't find two of them. Half the time. And I have like 18 Android ones. And then there are some, I don't even know what this is. There's stuff all over the place. And when we, when, we pull, when we pull those things out and we ask the question, what is this? What is this thing for? We are asking a purpose question. Right? If there's no connection, these things have to be connected to something to have a purpose. And if we don't know what they're connected to, then they are worthless. They really have no value. But when we ask, what is this for, we're asking a purpose question. And what's happened to me on multiple occasions is, well, it's probably happened to you. Has anybody thrown something away only to find out later that that screw was the only screw that was going to fit in that project until the whole project has to be scrapped because you threw that screw away? I, you know, you're too, you're too detailed. Um, there's only one thing that I won't throw away, and it's everything in my garage. <laughs> I will not throw anything in my garage away. When we moved, we moved into our garage, and Alicia forced me, I mean, made, helped me 
She helped me clean the garage. And so when we're going through it, she would hold things up and she would say, what is this thing? And I would say, I don't know. But I'm not throwing it away because once I do, I will need it. I, I have a screw for every situation, guys. If you need a screw, I will disappear in my garage and I will come out with something that fits. You never know. As soon as I throw it out, I'm going to need it. It's worthless now, but once it has a purpose, it becomes extremely valuable. In Psalm 90, Moses gives us some context. So let's take a look at that now. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 90. It's 17 verses long, but it's powerful. It's packed. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or you ever had formed the earth or the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, keep in mind that Moses grew up in a culture, in a world, really, where everybody, every culture believed that there were multiple gods, especially in Egypt. They had lots of gods. But Moses is very clear here. He's saying, no, 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 there's not multiple gods. There's actually one God. And it would be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before any other culture would catch up to this concept of there is actually only one God. And I can launch into, it's very cool, if you do a study of how the plagues during the time in Egypt that got them to let this people go, all of those plagues correlated to different gods that the Egyptians had. And God was proving, hey, all of those gods that you think are actually real gods, they're not. I'm the real God. We'll have to save that for another time. But if you want a fun study, go through that. The bookends of eternity are God. If we have time, if time starts here and it ends here, everlasting that way and everlasting this way, God is outside of time. And the only way we can see the brevity of our small little lives is in the context of His eternal nature. Um, he is immaterial and He is eternal. People, uh, a lot of cultures that believe in multiple gods, they are material. They had a beginning, they were created by somebody, um, and they had an ending, right? But he is immaterial, and he is eternal. And he says this in verse 3, You return man to dust, and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are as but yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. It's funny because I think it's in the NIV. Um, it says, You say... Return to dust, you mortals. It's a very Gandalf type of thing to say. Return to dust, you mortals. But in Genesis it says that we were made of dust. Man was made out of dust, and to dust he shall return. A thousand years is as a day. Peter repeats this in his second epistle. He says a thousand, days are as, a thousand years are as a day, and a day is as a thousand years to God. It doesn't matter. He's outside of time. It is all relative. And so Moses writes, a thousand years is as yesterday. Actually, it's not even like 24 hours. It's like a watch in the night. And a watch was three hours. So a thousand years to you guys, it's like three hours. It goes very quickly. Um, a football game. It's a football game and the time is ticking down. Our lives are just a blip on the line of eternity. Actually, it's, it's shorter than that. It's just, you can't even hear the blip. It's so small. In, in the context of eternity. Okay, verse 5. You sweep them away as with a flood, they are like a dream. Like grass that is renewed in the morning, in the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. Now, we're like grass. Very encouraging. Now, 
This time of the year, it's kind of weird because we've had a cooler summer and we've had a lot of rain, so the grass is greener now than it normally is. But this time of the year is when you could water your grass in the morning. It looks really good. That by 3 p.m., it's getting pretty crispy. It's getting pretty brown. And he says, we're like grass. Um, we had a, a house before and actually had sprinklers, and I had never had a house with sprinklers before. And I was like, finally, I will have green grass in the summertime, and I will be the envy of the neighborhood. And then I got the water bill. <laughs> I'm like, we got to change strategies. <laughs> That's not going to work. But we're like grass. He says this in verse 7. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. Encourage us, Moses. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to end like a sigh. Aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> everything that we think we're in control of, everything that we think we have control of, that we have wired, that we have figured out, is just an illusion. It's just an illusion. Everything we think we're hiding, he sees. Hebrews 4.13 says that none of creation is hidden from him. Everything is laid bare before him, before whom we're going to give an account. Everything is laid bare before whom we're going to give an account. And if we stand before the Lord without Jesus, if we stand there without Jesus by our side, the one who took the penalty from our sins, we will pass away in his righteous anger, his anger against sin. The wrath against sin was satisfied by Jesus' blood, but only if we accept him, only if we're following him. If not, we have made ourselves an enemy of God. And after all our work, after all our toil and struggle to build our little kingdom on earth, Moses, Moses says that we bring our years to an end with a sigh. Now, I sigh a lot, mostly as a pressure release valve, okay? Most of the time, like, you know, like a tea kettle, you know, so I don't explode. But, you know, a generic sigh is basically saying, I give up. I give up. After all of our toil, after all of our work, at the end of our lives, we have to say, I give up. That's all I can do. Verse 10. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Now, Moses used, he, he lived to be 120 years, but I think it's interesting that he said our days are between 70 and 80 years on average. I decided to look it up. What is the average life expectancy of someone in America today? It's 77 years. Isn't that interesting? It was 78, but then COVID came along and they took it down here. So now it's only 77. It was 78. But I think that's interesting. Now, Moses lived to be 120. In Genesis 6, God said, My spirit will not strive with man forever because he is but flesh. The days of his life shall be 120 years. Moses wrote Genesis, but it was also prophetic because he lived to be 120 years. Most of our days are filled with hard work and anxiety. How am I going to pay the rent? How am I going to fix the car? How are we going to put our kids through college? Right? How many times are we going to go to the doctor? When our kids were little, it felt like we were going to the doctor all the time. And I told Alicia, I said, Child Protective Services is going to take our kids away if we keep taking them to the doctor. <laughs> we were there all the time, man. 
But the point is, what are we living for? What are we living for? Our own glory or our own happiness? Um, it's interesting because oftentimes people, and we know this, people think that things will make them happy. If I can just get that car or that house or that job, I will be happy. But it's such an illusion because if things could make us happy, then we would just, whenever we were down, we would just take that happy little thing and go and make ourselves happy again. But that's not the way it works. There's a story of a king who was very dissatisfied with his luxurious lifestyle. And he had everything he wanted, but he was still unhappy. And so in his kingdom, there was the belief, there was the superstition that if you could find a truly happy man and wear his shirt, it would confer the happiness on you. So it's kind of like walking a mile in another man's shoes, right? And so he calls his counselors together. He says, listen, I want you to go through the kingdom. I want you to find a truly happy man. And I want you to get a shirt and bring it back to me so I can be happy. And you think that they would be gone for a couple days, maybe a couple weeks. But as the story goes, they were gone for three months. And they finally come back and they come to the king and he says, well, did you find the truly happy man? And they said, actually, we did find the truly happy man. And he said, well, did you bring it? Did you bring the shirt? Where is it? And they said, well, we found the truly happy man, but he didn't have a shirt because his happiness wasn't wrapped up in things. It wasn't wrapped up in the what. It was wrapped up in the who. Toil and trouble, and then we're out of here. Verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Sometimes we read through these verses and they're written in such a way that they're kind of confusing. And so we kind of read past them um, because we just want to get to the end of the chapter. We just want to get to the end of our reading for that day. But let me put this in another way, another uh, translation that really helped me out. It says this, who thinks about the power of your anger? Who connects the brevity of this life among your judgment of sin? And your wrath, who connects it with the reverent fear that is due you? Who connects it? The brevity of this life among us with the judgment of sin and with the reverent fear that is due you. One of them says, if we only knew. If we only knew. Implication, there's something to know. And we will miss it if we're not looking for it. If we can only see as God sees. If we could only see things in the broader context we would give him the honor and the glory that he's due. We talk about brevity. We talk about how short life is. But we don't live like it. We don't always live like it. We have to take stock of our lives and how brief it is. Because after life comes the judgment. Hebrews 9 tells us that it is appointed once for man to die. And then comes the judgment. Then we stand before him. But Christ. But Jesus. But Jesus, we stand there with our Savior who took the punishment for our sins. He came once and he's coming again. Um, in the show, we were uh, catching up on the shows of last night. Sammy hadn't seen some of the episodes, so we're watching it. And there's one where they take Jesus away, if you've seen it, and he says, I'll be back. And he's trying to like foreshadow to his disciples, and they completely freak out that he's being taken away. When he told them he would come back. And he's trying to prepare them for the day when he really isn't here. And he says that he's going to come back. He will come back, but not to deal with sin. He already dealt with that. But to save his people, to bring them out of here, the ones that are waiting for him. Okay, verse 12. And this is the clincher. This is the point. This is the purpose of this whole chapter. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. 
You probably heard people say, well, your days are numbered. Your days are numbered. And it sounds like a threat, but it's not a threat. It's a promise. Our days, our numbers are numbered. They could go two ways. We can either live for ourselves, for our own glory. We can live like our days are numbered, because they are. And we can live for the one, the only one that gives our life meaning and purpose. We can live for ourselves, or we can live like our days are numbered, and we can glorify God in all we do. Because if we live for our flesh, if we live to just simply pig out, then we're going to live like a hog and die like a dog, is basically what I like to say. Live like a hog and die like a dog if we live for ourselves. There's just like this junk drawer that is in you know your kitchen probably, it would be like looking in there and grabbing out your little life and saying, what is this little life for? What is this life for? And we're asking a purpose question. And more importantly, we say, what am I for? What am I here for? And ultimately, we get to the question, who am I here for? Because the what am I here for is too small. The what is too small to live for. The who is greater than us. It gives our life context. It gives our life purpose. If you answer that question, what am I here for? If you answer that question, me, if I'm here for me, then you're going to spend your whole life working and toiling, trying to satisfy your life, and you will perish, and you will fall away, you will fly away as you are burned up. We need to be connected to the who to have a purpose that's greater than ourselves. Because in the context of time, our lives are too short to live for our own glory. You were created in the image of a who, and not Dr. Seuss. <laughs> you were created in the image of a who, not a what. Your purpose is connection with your creator. We find purpose when the creature and the creator come together for the creator's agenda. That's where we find purpose, when the creature and the creator come together for the creator's agenda. Without connection, there is no purpose. To have purpose, there must be a connection. That's what Moses is telling us. Here's the rest of the chapter. chapter. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our lives. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let the things that we do count. Let us be burdened with glorious purpose. Uh, it's interesting because as I was working on this this week, I was putting on Pandora and I was just listening to some music. And if you've never heard of a group called Shane and Shane, they are amazing. And what they do is they take the psalms and they literally just sing the psalms. They, they turn them into a song. And as I'm sitting there working on it, I hear Shane and Shane, and they're actually, they have a song called Psalm 90, and that's what they were singing as I was going through this. It was incredible. C.T. Studd was a missionary to China and India and Africa, three of the toughest places you could go and be a missionary. Um, he actually was a C.T. Stud, Studd. <laughs> he wrote a poem entitled, Only One Life Twill Soon Be Passed, Only What's Done for Christ Will Last. I think you probably read that when I was little. But it fits so perfectly with what we're talking about today, with life and time and purpose. C.T. Stud was somebody who made the connection between those things, and he wrote this poem, and I want to read it to you. 
It's a little bit long, but Alicia said you could take it. <laughs> Just like the video, it's not seven minutes long. But I want to read it to you. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears. Each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy and sorrow, thy word to keep, faithful and true, whatever the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living with thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say thy will be done, and when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say, t'was worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I'm dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has burned out for thee. Fits it perfectly. Only one life. But in that life, God can take a frail, sinful human being and in his love transform what is weak into something for his glory. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message of the gospel. He can take something that's sinful and weak and frail and transform it for his glory. We are dead in our sins, but Jesus. And the favor of Jesus rests upon us when we surrender to it new. When we're connected to him, he transforms us and gives us a glorious purpose. Where's my worship team? <laughs> you guys can come back up. Paul can have joy shipwrecks and beatings and imprisonments because he was surrendered to Jesus and his glorious purpose was to preach the gospel. The creature and the creator coming together for the, for the creator's agenda. Rick Warren wrote a book, um, one of the best-selling books of all time, The Purpose Driven Life. And I read the book and I was very disappointed when I got to the end of it because I wanted it to tell me what my purpose was. I wanted a formula. I wanted a test. I want something to tell me what my purpose was. And you might be saying, Nathan, yes, give me something tangible that I can take away, that I can use, that is going to tell me what my purpose is. But it's not about connecting to a what. It's about connecting with a who. Go do all things to the glory of God. Whatever he's giving you, whatever your time, whatever your talents, whatever your treasure is, use it to influence your sphere of people, where you go, the people that you meet, use it to bring God glory. You were created on purpose for a purpose. You were created on purpose for a purpose. Don't miss it. Let us number our days so that we can gain a heart of wisdom. To see our lives in the context of eternity, 
because only what's done for Christ will last. Amen? As we go, let's stand and worship one more time.